Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to these go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. Greg, what's going on, man? It is uh, the day we're recording. It is, what is it, Nathan? May 10th? May 10th. And uh, it's cold and rainy. I know. And I feel like we live in Seattle. Because <laughs> we, we had, what, like two days of sun? Yeah. And then it's just gone back under again. I know. So, uh, but I'm good. Because of our guest. That's right. And, so excited. And, and Steve. And Steve. Oh, I, I thought you meant me. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dude, we've uh, we've been cranking these out with Steve like uh, like there's no tomorrow. I he's, know, man. He's been in here left and right. And, it's and, been great. And, hey, it's my pleasure. Steve, your pay demands are starting to get a little bit out of reach, man. Oh, you think so? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we've had to double what we were it's paying. It's my man. agent, man. Talk to my agent. <laughs> Isn't her name Debbie? Is that yeah, right? That's exactly. <laughs> runs my life. Uh-huh. <laughs> she knows where all the finances are all that all that good stuff but uh, uh, no it's good to be here and uh before we get to our our other guests today um greg word from our sponsor yeah olive tree again rocking and rolling with olive tree software steve remember i was showing you yes. uh, right before we um went live today i'm on my iphone here pulling up my uh olive tree bible app which is just great uh i use the esv as my standard text and with a split screen feature you know, I can pull up Calvin's uh, commentaries, uh, maps, charts, any commentary. I could pull up a book from uh, somebody like a Dr. John Frame and uh, read spoiler that. Spoiler alert. Right there. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, and um, that's uh, just the guys that have partnered uh, with us. Uh, and check them out. They have sales all the time. I just bought some things recently uh, that were great. All of our listeners if you put in the promo code SUSTAIN11, the number is 11, a uh, little inside joke to the movie there, SUSTAIN11, uh, <laughs> you will get a 20% discount. Um, and uh, in fact, I'm going to put in the show notes a link to uh, all of Dr. Frame's books that are on Olive Tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, we'll probably get to that at the end, right, Nathan? Yep. We're going to give away, Olive Tree is going to give away a book, and P&R Publishing is going to give away a book. Yep. You'll want to hear how you can get this. Yep. So, so. stay tuned uh, nice. for the end of the podcast, and Greg and I will be joining you back to, to see how you can do that. So Great. Um, and with no further ado, um, obviously, our guest today, Dr. John Frame. Dr. Frame, how are you doing today? Good to be here and good to be with uh, all of you. Now, we were talking uh, just before the podcast started. Your weather down there in Florida is a little different from ours, huh? Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> well, we're uh, edging up into the 90s for highs. Oh. And, uh, very, very humid. And uh, it's getting to be that summertime. I, we, we have about uh, two months down here where it's... Uh, you know, low humidity and fairly cool and a lot of uh, fun to be outside. But uh, that's only for a very short period <laughs> yeah. of a year, uh, no matter what the Chamber of Commerce would like to tell you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and our listeners would probably be interested to know, and Dr. Frame can verify that, Steve Hartland was angling to get into Dr. Frame's guest room uh, <laughs> down there and, you know, offering his Wouldn't truck. It'd be great and, to be down there with my Harley. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Dr. Frame, you have a Harley, don't you? <laughs> you and Dr. Frame could go Harley riding. We could go riding. Yes. 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 Uh, no, that is uh, – yeah, Florida sounds good to us right now, Dr. Frame, for what we're experiencing here in 
the Mid-Atlantic. But uh, I, you, we, I'll tell you, it's a shorter season than Florida. But let's admit it, guys, our summers here can be pretty brutal. Uh, yeah. They can be high humidity, high humidity and heat. You know, being near uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the coast. But uh, bigger and better things to talk about, right, Nate? Absolutely. So we are here to talk about uh, Dr. Frame's book, Systematic Theology. Um, Dr. Frame, we just want to dive right into this. Um, Before we get into the actual book and content of the book, which um, I'm sitting here looking at it, and it's quite extensive, um, (laughs) can you just talk to us a little bit about the value of studying theology? Well, uh, theology is simply uh, human beings trying to understand the Bible and uh, to apply the Bible to our uh, lives and uh, answer questions about the Bible. And uh, there are different kinds of theology. There's uh, exegetical theology, where we look at individual passages very closely and carefully. Uh, there's histor- There's uh, Biblical theology, as they call it, when we look at the narrative of the Bible from creation to uh, final judgment. Uh, There's uh, historical theology, where we look at the uh, different historical figures like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and try to understand what they uh, taught from the Bible. And then there's my book uh, called a systematic theology, which uh, there are many of these, and the, I think the idea of a systematic theology is that you ask questions about what the whole Bible teaches, you know? If you're asking about uh, atonement, for example, you can read Leviticus, and you can read uh, uh, Hebrews, and you can read Romans, and so on and so forth, but if you're a systematic theologian, you want to put all these together and ask yourself, uh, what does the whole Bible teach about the atonement? And uh, I think those are the questions that really come down to our our lives, because uh, when we talk about obeying God's Word, we mean obeying everything that God's Word says, and uh, adding it all up and deciding what the Word says to us today. So it's a, systematics is a very contemporary kind of theology and a very practical kind of theology. Most people don't understand that. They think it's a, a kind of academic thing, but it doesn't need to be that at all. Yes, yes. I uh, wanted to ask you, Dr. Frame, uh, this is a very relevant question that came up to me recently. Um, somebody asked me, Greg, is it possible to exposit a passage of Scripture without your systematic theology getting in the way? Uh, or is that even the right way to look at it? In other words, you're, you're reading a passage. Obviously, a classic example would be uh, James 2, right? And you might be getting the impression from the immediate context that you have to add works to faith to be saved. And they asked me this question because they said, if you want to be a pure biblicist... Um, Shouldn't you let James sort of take you where he wants to take you without letting your, yeah, but remember what Paul said and remember what what somebody else said. Just be curious, you as a, obviously a highly trained theologian, how would you answer that question? Well, I think when you're reading any book, you need to take account of the context. Uh, That's the main rule for determining meaning. 
I think the book of James, of course, uh, has a lot to say about grace, has a lot to say about uh, uh, why our works are not uh, uh, something that adds to our justification. But uh, the Bible, uh, there's no getting away from it. The Bible is a series of books that's been written over a period of thousands of years, and uh, if you're going to understand what the Bible says, you need to look at more than one passage in the Bible. And uh, when you when you get to James, uh, uh, you you can be misled if you don't understand where James is coming from. If you don't understand uh, James, the people who wrote before James, and if you don't understand the teaching of Jesus, who was uh, James' earthly brother, and uh, uh, so uh, it's just a matter of being responsible. So I don't think I don't think it's a bad thing to let your systematic theology uh, influence your reading of particular passages. That's the only responsible thing to do. And if your systematic theology is right, if your systematic theology is biblical, then it's not going to distort your understanding of any passage in the Bible. Hmm, very good. Dr. Frey, my, this is Steve. I, uh, I was blessed to go to Washington Bible College four years, Capital Bible Seminary three years for a Master of Divinity. And in those seven years, I had seven years of Greek. A whole lot of that wow. was Greek exegesis courses, drawing the meaning out of the text for the listeners. Uh, and I had, this is interesting, I can remember two systematic theology courses really i believe uh i believe in that school systematic theology was somewhat suspect like we don't trust systems that people make up we just want to go to individual texts but i came to think that's impossible i cannot approach one text without thinking about all the other texts Mm. and unless i was schizophrenic or something why (laughs) have you experienced this skepticism towards systematic theology and why does it exist if you have well often i'm a little skeptical myself (laughs) one of the problems in the church that people under the guise of systematics have uh, have uh, distorted certain passages and then they've forced other passages to conform to their system because they don't have very good systems that's the the problem uh you know there are some traditions uh, uh you know Protestants and Roman Catholics uh, differ quite a bit on the uh, systematic approach that they have uh, toward the Bible, and the problem is not being systematic. It's a problem is having a bad system, a mm, system good. that uh, distorts the individual passages that you're trying to understand. Very helpful. Yes, and uh, Dr. Frame, when do you think, as you mentioned uh, biblical theology, um, I, I think I had a seminary professor who um, uh, would basically illustrate it by saying, well, Biblical theology draws a line uh, where systematic theology draws a circle, you know, where you're, you're tracing out maybe what is the Johannine understanding of faith. Um, and I remember uh, he would always caution us this was a more exegetically based approach he was taking where he was he did value, to your point, Steve, systematic theology, but he said – that the building blocks of a good systematic obviously has to start with the text, and then you bring in um, you know other writers, uh, as you mentioned Augustine, and you go more to the um, uh, 
um, historical theology. So maybe you could comment on that. But the real question I'm trying to get to is, at what point, Dr. Frame, did you feel ready to write a systematic theology? Because I've wondered, could somebody write one when they're too young and underdeveloped? Now, I asked you about 30 questions. Because Greg's getting ready to write one. (laughs) (laughs) My Dr. Frame, I'm going to write on my receipt from McDonald's. Um, (laughs) See if anybody buys that. I asked you about 30 things, didn't I, Nathan? I see Nathan saying, okay, that was about 30 questions. And that theology will sound an awful lot like Dr. Frame's. It'll sound like a a poor man's Dr. Frame's theology. There's the Cliff Notes version. So anything I threw out there, Dr. Frame, I'm just so excited to ask you these things. I kind of overshot, but just... Pick up any thread you will. <laughs> well, if I, if I miss anything important in your question, uh, fill me in after I'm done. Yeah. But, the, uh, you know, you have metaphors like the line and the circle, and those are, those are okay as long as you remember that that's a metaphor. Uh, biblical theology is kind of uh, called a, a line because it's a narrative. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a... Uh, you start at one point and you end at another point, and everything else that you do in biblical theology is a way station along that line. And it's good to keep reminding yourself that the, the Bible is a story, it's a narrative, it has a beginning, middle, and end, and you always have to keep that in mind. But uh, I don't think that uh, invalidates or uh, that doesn't say anything good or bad about systematics. Systematics is a uh, asking questions about what it all adds up to. Uh, mm-hmm. If we know what faith means uh, meant to Abraham, and we know what faith means to David, and we know what faith means to uh, Paul, and uh, we know what faith means to James, uh, it's uh, legitimate to ask, well, how does this all fit together? And and that's the same question as asking, what does faith mean to me? So... Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, systematics is a very practical discipline and a very contemporary discipline. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, well, are, are there some other elements of your question that you'd like no, to No, uh, I mean, uh, actually, that was funny. great. Uh, Dr. Freeman, yeah. a part of Greg's multi-perspectival <laughs> question, notice how I put that. Uh, we'll get to that topic yeah, later, uh, won't we? That's right. Uh, was, um, is it possible to... Uh, to prematurely attempt yes. to write a systematic theology. I'd like to ask that same question, but from a different angle, and that is I'm not concerned in this in my question about whether the person is theologically immature and unprepared, but I'd like to know, uh, is it possible to be um, unprepared in your heart? What, what are some of the heart and character prerequisites for doing systematic theology. And let me set that up a little bit more. One of the complaints about systematic theologians is great minds, great men, men who have high view of scripture differ sharply, sometimes so sharply they part ways. They're not friends any longer, which as a footnote kind of makes me glad that we read about Paul and Barnabas getting sharply divided over John Mark. Right. (laughs) This happens to great men in real life. But anyway, uh, uh, what are some of the heart prerequisites necessary to do systematic theology so I don't wind up becoming narrow, sectarian, denunciatory, and isolated from other parts of the body of Christ? Yeah, well, uh, character is all important here. Uh, the heart is the center of uh, everything that we do, and Jesus says if your heart isn't right, your words will be distorted. That's true in systematics. It's also true in the among exegetical theologians and biblical mm. theologians and any kind of 
uh, preachers, any kind of yes. theologians, uh, uh, if they're uh, uh, not uh, seeking the glory of God, if they're not seeking the kingdom of God, then uh, their theology can really go astray, because they're trying to uh, come up with something that fits, uh, that justifies themselves, that fits their own uh, purposes rather than the purposes of God. And uh, we need to be able to sacrifice those. We need to be able to constantly inquire about uh, uh, how, uh, to what extent are we uh, promoting ourselves rather than promoting the truth of Scripture. And uh, uh, so, and, and the Ten Commandments, of course, are a pretty good guide to that. Uh, uh, are we uh, uh, are, are we honoring God above all other uh, supposed gods, and uh, so on? So, uh, yeah, that's that's tremendously important. I don't think it's any different, uh, essentially, in systematics uh, over against other kinds of theology, though. Yes, even like you mentioned, among pastors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. May I follow up a little bit more on this? No, please. Uh, Dr. Frame, you've, this is Steve, by the way. You've had, uh, you've received like widespread, lavish praise for your book. Great names, great men, men that we recognize in the, in the body of Christ, teachers, leaders, theologians, pastors have uh, heartily endorsed your book. But there are a few det- detractors. Um, one of them, uh, I, I knew his father. His his name may I name somebody? His name is Tom Chantry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's he's written oh, publicly. Yeah, he, sure. yeah, he wrote publicly, mm-hmm. so, so we can respond publicly. Sure. And uh, I, I was rather astounded. He he said that you're the most dangerous somebody, the most dangerous theologian on the earth, or something like that. Uh-huh. He was warning people about you. I think largely because of the regulative principle and some minor differences on that. And uh, he even went so far as to question your truthfulness. Uh, are you familiar with his responses to you, and uh, what's going on there? Well, Tom was a student of mine in uh, Westminster, California, and uh, about that time there was a kind of student revolt uh, uh, against some of my teaching. And uh, Wow. I don't know. Uh, Tom got uh, upset. He, he, he wrote a paper for me uh and somebody had told him that I like uh, papers that are that are creative and uh, uh, written with some uh, originality, and so he sort of satirized that. And I gave him a good grade. And he, the first criticism I ever heard was, uh, he said, "Well, Frame gave me a good grade on something that didn't deserve a good grade." <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, You're my kind of professor, Doctor Frame. This is a strange he, man. He was very serious, and he, wow. he started criticizing all kinds of things in my theology. And I have known his father uh, somewhat uh, when we lived in Pennsylvania, and uh, yes. so I don't know. If I, I, I've never really understood what was going with Tom. I, I, uh, I don't have anything against him at all uh uh he's he has a right to his own opinion but uh uh i haven't seen anything in his emails and essays and so on that would make me want to repent of anything i've written so i just uh pretty much let this let it go yes good interesting interesting well we when we had you on the first time dr frame we did talk about um how uh, your application perhaps I should say definition, application of the regulative principle has from time to time 
put you uh, maybe on a different side of the table among men that you fellowship with. Certainly still at the same table. Um, and I'm wondering, Steve, because you read more of that. I did read some of those this week when, when, uh, mm-hmm. when you pointed that out. Um, it, does that, to your knowledge, Dr. Frame, seem to be the, the, uh, <laughs> the lightning rod for potential controversy among some of your peers? Well, I wrote a uh, an essay back in the late 80s called Some Questions About the Regulative Principle, and then I wrote books, a couple of books on worship in the mid-90s, uh, in the period of the worship wars, as we say. And uh, as I understand it, I, I, I do have some questions about uh, one article in the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, I think it's number 109, where I, I think they, they, they go a little bit too far, so far as the uh, biblical teaching is concerned, about uh, uh, images of members of the Trinity and so on. Mm-hmm. But my, my basic view of the regulative principle is that, and I think this is true to the tradition, to the Reformed tradition, is that in worship, uh, you should never do anything unless there's some biblical warrant for it. That is, you never do anything in worship unless you have biblical reason to believe that God is pleased with it. Now, some Reformed people, and this is true of the tradition to some extent, some Reformed people have said that uh, this means you have to divide worship up into elements and circumstances and yes. expressions and forms. It gets pretty and, complicated. And uh, you have yeah. to determine specifically for each one whether there's a, an explicit biblical command or not, uh, so that if you, want to, uh, if you want to have a pastoral prayer in your service, you have to find an explicit biblical command to have a pastoral prayer and a service. Now, I don't think that's the way the Bible looks at worship, particularly in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that the New Testament contains almost no uh, direct commands about what to do in worship service. I think you can argue that uh, it's a good thing to have prayer, it's a good thing to read the scriptures, it's a good thing to have the sacraments, uh, and so on. But that leaves an awful lot untouched. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask, uh, uh, if you say, okay, we're going to have a sermon in worship, uh, what uh, precise words is the pastor to use in his sermon? <laughs> and you won't find that in the Bible. Right. Uh, you, you need to say, we're going to have a sermon, and we're going to have biblical content, but there's nothing in the Bible that says you need to use precisely these words uh, in your sermon. So you, when you talk about biblical warrant or biblical commands, you have to think a little bit more precisely than just, uh, well, is there a biblical command or not? Because often you have to do a lot of thinking in order to apply the biblical command. Right. If the Bible commands... Uh, a uh, song in uh, praise to God, 
well, what songs are those going to be, and what are the words of the songs? Uh, some people think that because uh, the word psalm is used in uh, uh, Ephesians, that we have to limit ourselves entirely to arrangements of the Old Testament psalms. Right. I don't think that's true. I think the word psalm is a generic term, and that uh, it has to do with any song of praise and what we ought to be singing are things that we're truly uh, thankful for, things that we are praising God for uh, today. So I, I think there's a lot more flexibility in the, the regulative principle than a lot of people think, and uh, that uh, uh, differs a little bit from the tradition, but I think that's the way we, we ought to go. Uh, there are some historically-minded people like Tom Chantry and yes. others who who think that uh, this was really a, a, a rejection of the Reformed tradition, and I just have to say respectfully, I, I don't think it is. I think I've done some thinking about the, the tradition of the Church, and uh, I think that what I'm uh, suggesting is, is perfectly in line. Uh, it's uh, what we've been talking about uh, uh, you know, it's not enough to acknowledge the Bible. You have to apply the Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and the Bible contains divine commands, but there's always a question about how you apply those divine commands. Uh, God says, don't steal. Uh, when I'm faced with filling out my income tax, uh, what is stealing uh, in that situation? The Bible doesn't mention the income tax. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible wants me to apply the Eighth Commandment to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I need to exercise my reason and my senses and all the tools that God has given me. Uh, once again, we're talking to Dr. John Frame um, from PNR Publishing about his book, Systematic Theology. Um, Dr. Frame, we, we're talking a lot about theology, and um, we want to get around to asking some questions about um, evangelism and apologetics within theology. Um, Last week, Steve and I did a podcast on apologetics, and one of the sections we did was almost apologetics for believers. Um, would you say that it's a fair assessment that um, what systematic theology tends to do is put out a defense of the Bible and of the gospel for believers more than unbelievers? Well, yes, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we need to... Uh, uh, help other believers to be clear on just why they believe what they believe, and uh, that's one of the important functions of apologetics. But if you're looking at First uh, Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, that could apply to a, a believer asking a question of, an un, uh, of another believer, but uh, I think it's more naturally taken uh, of an unbeliever asking a believer why he believes what he believes. Mm -hmm. So there should be uh, an evangelistic uh, function here. I think uh, one of the most important things that apologetics does is it helps us to respond to uh, unbelievers and therefore to make a case uh, for uh, uh, why Christianity is true and uh, to do that, of course, we need to engage in the 
you know, proof and defense and offense, uh, as I indicate in one of my other books. Yes, yes. Uh, my question, and this is uh, this is Greg, Doctor Fram. The uh, question that often comes up, uh, and I know you've probably heard this many, many times. Uh, hey, you know that's great. You have Doctor Frame on. He's written massive tomes and uh, is a brilliant mind. But uh, you know, I'm I'm not into theology. I hear people say that a lot, and I don't think I need to understand it. I don't think I need to study it. I just want to, you know, love Jesus, serve Him do what he wants me to do. Um, your thoughts on that, how um, you might engage a person that has such a view on theology? Well, I don't think that everybody uh, is equally gifted to uh, do theological work. I think that there are some people that God has uh, uh, gifted in a special way, and they tend to be uh, called to be pastors and to be teachers and to be uh, to other offices in the church. I think that people who have an office in the church have a special responsibility to be theologically uh, knowledgeable. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's some people who just don't have the education or the background or the mental equipment to uh, uh, really uh, think through the, uh, uh, you know, the various uh, theological distinctions, which are sometimes very complicated and, and difficult. And uh, But, you know, I think everybody has an obligation to understand uh, what God's Word is telling me about my life, about my decisions. Uh, when, we're, when we're teenagers asking what... Uh, uh, education we should get involved with, what field we should enter, uh, whether this person is, uh, uh, is a godly uh, choice as a spouse, uh, all these kinds of questions. Uh, we need to uh, be able to go to God's Word, and it may not even be directly going to God's Word. It may be going to your pastor. It may be going to a, uh, another Christian who's knowledgeable about these things, but we need to to care pre- predominantly about what God thinks of our decisions and which way God wants us to go. Now, I think that is a form of theology. That's not uh, uh, academic theology. That's not technical theology, uh, but uh, that is a kind of theology, and in that sense, every believer uh, is a theologian. He may be a good one or a bad one, uh, but every uh, believer has the obligation to be a theologian in the sense of uh, applying God's Word to his life. Yes. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot then, Dr. Frame, because I have a question from uh, a brilliant little uh, nine-year-old boy that I know, Isaac Dutcher. Um, and I told him. I wonder where he gets his brilliant. <laughs> notice <laughs> his mother. Oh. Right? Notice he gets an unsatisfactory answer from his father. <laughs> he, no, he's asked me this actually several times, uh, which I love uh, that he's asking me this, Dr. Frame, because I think he's thinking about these things deeply. He has figured out that Adam and Eve lived in paradise, and it was perfect, and there was no sin, and that one day we tell him he's going to be in heaven where there is no sin, um, and we're going to be in a similar place that they were. 
But he asked me, Dad, well, could we ever get kicked out of heaven the way Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden? And I answered him and um, gave him my answer. And my, my wife, as always, says, Greg, you're, you're a better theologian with adults than kids. Uh, because I don't know. He was, so I did tell him, I said, I'm going to have a very smart man on the podcast, Isaac, uh, named Dr. Frame. So that's a question I've been holding in reserve. I didn't even – just your thoughts on that. And I can uh, – Take that back to my nine-year-old. Well, that's a great question. Yeah. I think I'm, uh, I don't know if I have a, a totally best best answer for it, but the the Bible is very clear that once we're in heaven, uh, there will be no more crying or tears or sorrow. Uh, there will be no sin because Satan is gone, and the, so we'll all be living uh, uh, happily together. Uh, under the lordship of uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, if you're living happily together and you cannot commit sin, then uh, of course there's no way that you can fall again the way Adam and Eve did. Uh, there's no way that you can be kicked out of heaven the way Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, so you're just going to be there in the presence of God from uh, uh, eternity to eternity. You're, you're just that's your permanent home, and uh, uh, you'll be really happy, and you'll be uh, joyful uh, living with uh, God. Yes, yes. Very good, Dr. Frame. Thank you. And you made me feel better, because I answered along similar terms. Uh, but Great. That, Great. Yeah, no, that, that question does come up from time to time, obviously even with some older folks. And I feel like I've read you on this subject before, Dr. Frame, but do you um, – what's the term? Would you subscribe to the view that – that uh, the garden was somewhat probationary. Uh, in other words, that I've often, you know, while we, I would say we can't prove it exegetically, is it a reasonable assumption to say that Adam and Eve lived in a probationary state had they passed the test, uh, which of course they did not, that uh, they would have perhaps entered something like the state in Revelation 22, uh, sort of an eternal glorified state. Uh, just curious your thoughts on that. Well, that's a little bit hard to answer. It's a little bit speculative because the Bible doesn't come right out and tell us uh, what would have happened if uh, Adam and Eve hadn't fallen. But, uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear that uh, the uh, evils that uh, came into the world, uh, God said that uh, Eve would have pain and childbearing and that uh, Adam would would uh, encounter thorns and thistles when he went out to uh, plant crops and when he went out to gather food for the family. And it's pretty clear that all of that happened because Adam and Eve sinned. And so if Adam and Eve didn't sin, if they passed the test, if they passed the probation, then evidently there would be no pain in childbearing and there would be no... Uh, thorns and thistles to get get the people bloody when they go out into the fields. Uh, so, uh, could now what does that mean? Does that mean they could have lived in the garden permanently? Uh, does that mean that the garden would be transformed into something else, maybe like heaven, mm -hmm. uh, the the new heavens and the new earth? Does that mean that Adam and Eve would have? Uh, uh, gone around the whole earth, uh, keeping God's commandments to uh, replenish and subdue the earth, uh, uh, taking lordship over all the continents and 
and everything and transforming all of that into something like the Garden of Eden? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of a neat thing to think about mm-hmm. uh, one way or the other, but certainly we'd be better off uh, now than uh, uh, we would have been, than we have been since the fall, and uh, that would have glorified God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do, do you think it's fair to say, or maybe the better way to say it is to carefully, potentially, with many caveats, <laughs> um, assume that there is a difference between the believer in a glorified state than Adam and Eve in their, for lack of a better word, innocent state, if that makes sense? Well, I think there, uh, you can tell from Genesis 1 and 2 that there is going to be some level of transition because uh, uh, God made Adam and Eve to live uh, in history. They weren't uh, made as frozen statues. They were uh, made to uh, take an active role in the development of the world and uh, in the development of society, and God intended them to bear children, and God intended them to go out uh, in the fields, and uh, uh, he intended them to subdue the earth to become uh, the lords and ladies of uh, the creation. And so, uh, presumably, that would lead to change. Uh, it wouldn't, uh, things wouldn't stay the same. It wouldn't just remain the way it was in the Garden of Eden. There would be something more. There would be uh, consummations. Mm. There would be fulfillment points. There would be uh, transformations, growth in their character, growth in their level of knowledge, uh, growth in what they could accomplish by way of the arts and by way of government and science and all kinds of things. And so uh, I I assume that, uh, you know, the the uh, garden was the beginning of a series of transitions that uh, uh, if uh, Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, it would have created a world very different from the original garden. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I hesitate to uh, speculate on precisely what that could uh, include. Yes, and I, one of the things I love, Dr. about your writing is the care that you're even showing in answering these questions. I love that, too. Don't you? To not, yes. to to not see, go so far as to say, well, yeah, the, but to, we don't know. You could write a 75-page paperback bestseller. Oh, sure. And instead of saying, well, we don't know, you could say, here's what's going to happen. Uh, here's exactly. how this works. Exactly. I've I always, and I, we've talked about this, there's such a, a, a restraint to, yes. to stay within the bounds of authoritative scripture. And, and along with that, I'll yeah, squeeze in, and a fairness to opposing viewpoints. I yes, love that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yes, very, very good. Uh, uh, Steve and I are actually looking at the back. Uh, I think it's Appendix A in your in your book, which uh, our new youth pastor pointed out to me. It's one of his favorite, um, favorite aspects of your book, um, uh, Systematic Theology, The Triads where you break down things according to the normative, the situational, existential. Uh, and it's a fascinating chart to really see how you can apply one of the unique aspects of your theology, Dr. Frame, is triperspectivalism. First of all, I've been practicing that all morning on my drive here. <laughs> did, did, did I did pronounce it right? it right? And then I'm wondering if you can unfold that a little bit for our listeners uh, and I know that's a massive subject, but how would you develop that? Somebody that said, "Hey, what? Try what? 
what we should this? offer T-shirts that say "Try Perspectival." Oh, they have a big triangle on. Yes, them. they can have Doctor Frame. Picture Doctor Frame in the middle of the triangle. Well, some uh, other uh, people beating you too. Oh, they- <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Oh, shoot! Oh. See, Steve, there's there's nothing new under the nothing sun. New. It, I it's thought been I had done. a great idea. It's uh, been done, but that is such a unique aspect to your theological method. Um, would you uh, uh, share that uh, uh, with us, Doctor Frame? What that means? Well, sure. Uh, when, uh, when I say perspectivalism without the try, uh, basically that's just the point that uh, uh, since we are creatures of God and we're finite, uh, we can't know everything at once the way God does. Uh, we can only see things one perspective at a time. So when I look at a tree and try to understand the tree, uh, I need to look at it from the front and then go around and look at it from the back and the uh, the, the two other sides and uh, uh, maybe even use scientific instruments to uh, discover what the chemical composition is and so on and so forth. So you keep multiplying perspectives. You keep looking at things from different angles, Mm -hmm. angle and perspective are about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Keep looking at uh, things from different angles, and uh, God doesn't need to do that, of course, because he knows everything at once, but uh, we do because we're creatures. Well, where does the try come from? The try basically comes from the Trinity. Uh, God is one God in three persons. And the three persons are equally God. They're equally to be worshipped and uh, to be honored. Uh, but the three persons are not identical. They're not synonymous. So the three persons are, have some slightly different uh, uh, ways of uh, entering into history. And so uh, the Father uh, doesn't become incarnate. He... he uh, appoints the Son to become man, and the man dies on the cross. Uh, The Son dies on the cross, not the Father, and uh, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So the viewpoint of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, agree with one another perfectly, with perfect harmony, but they're not exactly the same in every way. And so there's a threefoldness of uh, understanding that's important in the world and that's important for us as human beings to uh, uh, think about that and to think about the Father's perspective and the Son's perspective and the Spirit's perspective. Well, I, I can't go into all the complicated arguments here, but the uh, the way I do it is, is to think of the Father's perspective as normative. It's the Father who sets forth the basic plan of history that the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, bring about. So the Father, uh, although uh, you have to be careful here, all three, uh, all three uh, members of the Trinity are involved in everything that God does, but the the emphasis seems to be that the Father, uh, his role is normative. And then the Son is the one who puts the norms into practice, who sees that uh, God's plan is carried out in history. And that uh, term history 
uh, I uh, translate uh, situational, that is to say, uh, the Son comes into the world and carries out God's plan, uh, applying it to all the facts, all the situations in the world, and making them conform uh, to what His Father has laid out. And then the, the Holy Spirit, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, is to apply God's plan particularly to our hearts, to our subjectivity, to our inwardness, and I call that the existential perspective. Now, I think that when we're trying to understand anything, there are three questions that are especially important. One is the normative question, that is, how does, uh, if I'm looking at a tree, for example, well, how does the tree follow God's laws? How does it follow God's norms? The second question is the factual question. Uh, what are the different elements of the tree? What are the things that the tree possesses? What, is the, what are the facts about the tree? And then uh, thirdly is the relationship between the tree and ourselves. Uh, how can we make use of the tree in order to glorify uh, God? How can we appreciate the tree as a beautiful creation of God? Uh, so the normative question, the situational question, and the existential question are important for knowing anything, not just knowing the Bible or knowing theology. And you'll notice when I go through uh, these doctrines in my white book, I tend to use that kind of uh, uh, analysis uh, uh, in, in Appendix A. Uh, I have here, uh, if, if you want to talk about the divine lordship attributes, these are God's authority, control, and presence. Authority being normative, control being situational, presence being existential. And you can go through... Uh, you know, all of the uh, doctrines of divine attributes and providence and creation and uh, atonement and uh, incarnation and all, and you'll find reflections of those uh, threefold distinctions that come from the Trinity. So uh, I hope I've not been too confusing here. It's a very complicated uh, uh, argument, but I think it's helpful as yes. my students are always telling me, you know, they bring me things that uh, they say, is this uh, uh, is this triad uh, a good one? Uh -huh. <laughs> I say yes, and the, so they they uh, find it's a helpful one in understanding the Bible. At the very least, it gives you a series of hooks, uh, a kind of structure uh, that you can hang your knowledge on and uh, uh, learn. Uh, better, the way the Bible comes together. Uh, the Bible is always concerned about what the Father does, what the Son does, what the Spirit does, and how all of that uh, comes into our lives. And so that's why I put so much emphasis on it in the book. Yes, and it, it comes through very, very clearly. Uh, and again, I know Nathan is about to bring us home, but uh, just again, systematic theological, uh, systematic <laughs> theology, an introduction to Christian belief. <laughs> I did, and I couldn't say theology yet. yet. <laughs> I practiced all morning, too. But um, such a wonderful workout for the mind, uh, such careful attention to Scripture, 
uh, and really wonderful reasoning. Uh, and uh, I think you, readers, those of you that like to read and study, this is going to be a great, great addition to your library. Yes. Um, so, Dr. Frame, we are getting ready to wrap up here. Uh, just one more question because there are so many uh, systematic theology books out there, um, and I'm assuming they're written because in some way they're nuanced from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, what would nuance – well, there are two questions here. The first one is what would nuance your systematic theology book from other systematic theology books? Um, and then – so with that, the second one would be – why should someone go out and buy your book as opposed to someone else's? I'm going to kind of put you on the spot there and let you brag on yourself a little bit. Well, my book is over a thousand pages, and so uh, <laughs> it gives you some physical exercise. Yeah. <laughs> it's one reason why they should buy mine. It's uh, harder to carry around, and uh, we're all in favor of uh, uh, body as well as soul. But uh, <laughs> yes. the... Uh, the nuance, I mean, uh, you know, different theologies differ uh, in uh, various ways, and I, I think that you really, there's no, you shouldn't confine yourself to one systematic theology. There are a lot of excellent ones which have a different kind of emphasis or a different kind of method or something. I think Bovink's uh, Reform Dogmatics is a wonderful uh, four-volume set uh, uh, and so on. What my theology does is to try to present a vision for a vision of the Bible. It's uh, it's mostly focused on the Bible. I don't do a whole lot of history. I don't uh, talk a whole lot about Calvin and uh, uh, Luther. I, I do a little bit when I need it to make a point, but uh, uh, I don't think it's... Uh, for me, it would not be a wise idea to try to combine church history... Uh, with uh, exegesis of a single book. I think that would be uh, too much. Uh, But, you know, I have my uh, pedagogical devices, my triads. I have uh, (laughs) a number of uh, things in there that I hope will uh, teach my readers uh, how to uh, uh, understand the Bible and how to apply it to uh, uh, the questions that they have in their hearts as they read God's Word. Thank you so much. Excellent. Um, We are unfortunately out of time now. Dr. Frame, as always, it has been such a pleasure to have you on um, and just get such great insight from you. Um, So we're going to go ahead and wrap up now. Uh, Greg, Steve, Dr. Frame, we just rocked the Casbah. You just finished listening to Dr. Frame talking about his book, Systematic Theology. Um, As we promised earlier in the podcast, we do have a couple giveaways. Um, So, Greg, I'm going to let you go ahead and take that one away. There were two copies of Dr. Frame's Systematic Theology. See, now that he's not here, I can say it fine. An introduction to the Christian (laughs) faith. Man, what we were just talking, what a sweet man, isn't he, guys? Just humble brilliant mind but there's there's a there's a humility to him Mm -hmm. he's not bombastic that you know a guy's been teaching theology for 50 years dude like that could easily cocky yes just like he truly has as the old uh adage says forgotten more theology than we've ever learned yeah uh i mean he does more theology in his dreams while we're sleeping (laughs) than i've ever acquired in my life yes it's just amazing the way he he will unfold things so carefully. Uh, so we're uh, two copies. We're thankful again to Olive Tree that's going to give away. Now the way to work an Olive Tree, you can uh, register for a free account if you have nothing. 
Uh, but if uh, you win, you will uh, all they will need, and I can help you do this, uh, Nathan and I can. They'll just need your email, mm-hmm. and in your account, they will drop a copy of that book for free. I think it's a forty dollar value ebook mm, nice. form into your uh, Olive Tree account that you can access on your phone, tablet, uh, PC, uh, MacBook, whatever. Um, so we're going to give away one copy that way. One copy, uh, standard hardback from PNR itself, the one we're holding. Uh, Nathan, a contest is done though, because I think Steve and I just want them. Yeah, I, I <laughs> got to get one of those. I was going to say, would that be? Come uh, on, is that a conflict of interest, guys? <laughs> is that part of my contract? <laughs> is that wrong? Yeah, our listeners like, I hung on for this. It's like, is, yeah, is that wrong, dude? We should have had the Costanza clip right there. Uh, <laughs> was that was that wrong? Um, but no, uh, iTunes reviews will yeah. be the path to do it this week. We will open it up. Uh, hey, we're going to open up to new iTunes reviewers. I've got to uh, write a review with a fictitious name. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to track that down, Steve. <laughs> yeah, if it's Dutch Doggy Dog 2 or a Heartland 3, Nathan's going to be <laughs> very suspicious. It, That's right. Um, but uh, you go to iTunes. Uh, if you haven't written a review, again, they help us a great deal expand our reach to a wider audience. Uh, we're so thankful for everybody that's written one. Uh, many, of you, many of you have won. Uh, copies. I did find out one guy wrote a review a year ago and wrote a second review under the same name. Yeah. So perhaps you can do that hmm. as it updates. I don't know. You check it out on iTunes. Yeah. I'm not telling you to create another alternate ID. Right. That's up to your conscience. If your wife does it, your teenage child does it. However, <laughs> all we're going to do is next week, we are going to announce uh, randomly two winners. Yes. One will get uh, the hardback. One will get the ebook. Uh, again, we're thankful for Olive Tree and PNR for joining with us in this promotion. So, mm-hmm. and um, as we said, because of our crossover with Pop Culture oh, Ninja, um, we are going to announce on this podcast the contest um, for next week. Um, so, we're actually going to release a, a new episode on Thursday of Pop Culture Ninja. So, not this Thursday, but next week, um, we will draw the names of that. But um, we're going to give away six prizes. So, if if we get um, so anyone who uh, likes us on Facebook, we are going to pull all the names of that for the first one because I know some of you are oldies and we're just getting back into it and refreshing things. So we will pull three winners. Um, we posted the uh, prize pictures on Facebook, both on these Go to Eleven and on Pop Culture Ninja, and also on Twitter. So some great prizes in there, cool Greg. Stuff you in there, were, man. yeah. I was salivating over that picture. I want every one of those things. So I can't get them. I'm disqualified. Well, no, because you're you're you're. Oh, I'm not, I'm not disqualified because no, you're following under Greg Dutcher, oh, dude. Hey, so, dude, I want to win. You so go. your name will be in the pool that we'll we'll draw from. Yeah, you um, know I'm not going to win. Nathan's going to find a way to block it. But anyway, <laughs> right. So uh, we will do three for um, all the followers again next week. That w- when we do this, we'll we'll draw three random people. All the followers we have on Facebook and then also on Twitter. Um, we've got a Nathan ended back in uh, 2012 with a huge following on Twitter. He did. Uh, and so we are trying to revitalize that, breathe life back into it and, and get that going again. So also, if you follow us on Twitter, we will do um, three, uh, again, all-time uh, Twitter followers. Um, we will get you on there and we will draw three winners for that and then we will start our iTunes um, our iTunes promotions as well as soon as that's all up and running and we see that that's cycling through well so awesome. I'm still waiting to hear back from iTunes so awesome and Heartland we expect to see your name 
on Pop Culture Ninja today. Right. You can win some cool stuff. Oh, yeah? Cool oh, yeah. stuff, man. Right. I mean, you ought to see the, the stuff they're giving away. It's really cool. So, um, yeah, I'm pumped, man. Yeah, it's going to be good. All right, guys, we are done signing out. Have a great day, y'all. See ya. Bye. These go to 11.